0: On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today. We are chatting about the deadline for candidates to jump into the municipal election. That's this Friday. How is the Hamilton municipal election situation shaping up? We're going to talk to Peter Grafe about that one. Money has been dedicated for black entrepreneurs and business people in Hamilton. We'll talk to the federal minister who is behind that. What is going to happen with the investigation or the inquiry into the emergency act that's going to start soon we will learn more details about that in the last couple of days tim power will be here we're going to talk james bond we're going to talk music we're going to talk even why the home run race the possibility that someone might without the use of drugs we think beat roger maris's mark is getting absolutely it seems zero attention We'll get into all of that. Stick around.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Friday is the cutoff date. If you are going to put your name in to run for office, school board, trustee, counselor, mayor, whatever, Uh, Friday is the cutoff date, Friday afternoon. So we are getting down to the short strokes here. And we probably at this point have most of the candidates who are going to be running registered not all there will be some last minute jump ins but probably we're getting a bit of a bit of a picture of what the election is going to look like and what is the election going to look like well let me bring in peter grafe professor of political science at mcmaster peter thanks for the time today appreciate it as always my pleasure let us begin with uh with the big race which is always the mayoral race which um In this case, I'm wondering if it's a good thing as far as we're always trying to get people to come out and vote. And municipal politics is always a struggle to get people to go to the polls. Is it a good thing when you have a big name or a couple big name people like Andrea Horvath and Bob Bratina and even Keenan Loomis? Is it a good thing when you've got big names or is it in a case where it seems like Andrea Horvath is the biggest name? Is that going to maybe suppress some voting because everyone just assumes Andrea is going to win? So why bother?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess a lot plays out on both uh, what kinds of campaigns are run. So, you know, part of it is the campaigns themselves. If those candidates are out contacting a lot of voters, reminding them to vote, uh, trying to encourage them to get their supporters out to, on election day, you know, that's going to have a positive impact. But as you point out, if if people believe the race is not competitive, then they're likely to stay home. So, I, I guess a lot will happen in the next few you know few weeks. Uh, I think you are right that the, you know, Andrea Horvath seems to be in a lead, but uh, I don't think the, the Loomis or Bertina camps uh, have decided that it's over. And so to the extent that they can make it a race, uh, it may encourage more people uh, to come out and vote. Uh, you know, Andrea Horvath certainly has, uh, I mean, surprisingly the most name recognition since Bertina had been mayor of the city, uh, as well as a, you know, a, a member of parliament. Uh, but you know, I'm not sure that means that she's a shoe and I think people are still standing back and saying, well, you know, what do these people actually stand for? What are they like, you know, today in terms of what they would do if they're mayor?
0: Do you think the mayoral race drives the vote? Do you think that the, the people come out, do, do people come out to vote for their ward councillor or do you think it's the mayoral race that makes people decide? I mean, last time it was the LRT, it was the stadium that always seemed to fall to the mayoral race, even though they only have one vote.
2: Yeah, I mean I think I think the mayoral race does drive it although we do see in, you know, wards where you have candidates mounting serious campaigns and you know there's some competition, you know that too will have an impact in in pushing uh, the voting in that ward up and in a case where, you know, it's uh, almost an acclamation, not really a serious challenge to a sitting councillor, uh, you'll have slightly lower uh, voter turnout. So yeah, I mean, the main driver is the mayoral race. But again, if you have a bunch of wards, as we do this time, where there are where there's not a, uh, a sitting or returning candidate, uh, you know, a councillor isn't uh, running again, uh, you will have a series of campaigns that will be working hard to, to drive voters out, and there will be a lot of people on people's doorsteps, which is also important in reminding people to vote. So uh, that might be, you know, moving and pushing us towards a higher turnout, the simple fact that we have a large number of councillors stepping down this time and in those wards, uh, you know, we're seeing a larger number of candidates uh, contesting them.
0: We have uh, a few wards. Ward 1, I'm just going through it here. Ward 1, Ward uh, 6, Ward 7, Ward 8, and Ward 11. I think that's it. Oh, and Ward 13. So there's a bunch of them that have only two candidates in them. There are also wards like four that have 11 what, what, which one is the preferable option, to have just a couple so you can really crystallize what each person stands for and vote for them, or a whole bunch so that you get a whole bunch of different opportunities?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, uh, because in many cases, you know, where you have, say, 11 people running, there may be only, you know, four or five serious campaigns in there. Uh, You know, and when you get that many uh, different candidates, I mean, I remember voting in an election uh, where there was maybe 22 candidates in my ward. uh, You feel almost a bit overwhelmed. Uh, You know, you you know that you don't know many of those people. And you have the, you know, unfortunate circumstances we've seen in the city of getting councillors elected, you know, sometimes with as little as 17 or 18% of the votes cast because, uh, you know, the votes are split so many different ways. And that too, as a voter, you you're really beginning to ask, well, what is my strategic vote, right? <laughs> who might actually, you know, win in, in this kind of context? You no, know, so in that case, if you have two candidates, there is the sort of benefit of giving you a clear choice and, and to know that whoever wins is going to ultimately have had the the majority of the votes in that, in that ward, which is, I think, you know, important in a democratic sense. But that only works if you've got, like, candidates who are, are really viable, right, who run strong campaigns. You know, in some cases, a municipal politics uh, campaign is really just a name on the ballot. And if that's one of your two candidates, you probably feel like you weren't given a fair choice.
0: Well, and and, you know, that's another really difficult part of municipal politics is I'm looking, and I don't want to say which ward it is right now, because I don't want want to be embarrassing any of the candidates, but there's a number of them. And, Peter, I would suggest that if you asked 100 people in Hamilton, if you listed all their names and said, who are these people, 99 out of 100 would have no idea. They are not household names right now, and yet that requires then, because municipal politics doesn't have the same exposure every candidate that provincial, you you know what the parties stand for in provincial or federal politics. It requires a level of digging by voters to go find out what each of these people stands for. That uh, That's a tough one to ask voters to go and research 6, 7, 10, 12 candidates.
2: Yeah, and, and the fact is uh, they won't. <laughs> and so what becomes really important then is is shoe leather. I mean, one thing you you can do if you started at the, you know, the the beginning of the nomination process and have been out all summer is that, you know, you may have been to every uh, door in your ward by uh, by Election Day. So, uh, you know, an important feature then in in municipal campaigns is for the candidates to get out and tell people what they stand for, um, you know, and to show up on their doorstep. And so the ability to mount a campaign is really crucial uh, to find volunteers, people who are going to help, you know, spread the word about, why you're running and why you'd be a good representative, you know, that becomes really crucial in terms of your capacity to reach people and turn them out on election day.
0: Yeah. It's it's an interesting one because as I say, we we've seen, and I I don't know which ward you're in, but the, you know, where there's up to 22 people, we've seen that before. I think ward two, a few years ago uh, had some extraordinary number like that. And you just wonder how anybody or how the majority of people filter through that or what ends up driving their vote. And, you know, so, sometimes I wonder if you were ever going to run, if you would, if it's best just to make your name like Aaron Aronson or something, so you get a few A's at the beginning and you're first on the ballot. If if, if that may end up just being the difference, because, oh, there's a name, okay, I'll just do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, with the low turnout in municipal campaigns, I suspect the people voting uh, generally aren't the people who are just going to come and say, you know, a curse on all their houses. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, and that's, a, you know, it's a problem because it probably encourages people to vote who have, you know, the time to go and learn, you know, very obscure things about people they've never heard of before, uh, you know, and that's maybe not that representative, uh, you know, all, all told. But I think what we've seen in races in the past is you get, again, you know, three, four or five candidates who've shown themselves to be present, uh, to have mounted more serious campaigns. And those are the ones that people will usually be choosing a, choosing between when they when they go to vote. I mean, they can see from the signs on the lawn, or they can see from who's shown up at their door, uh, who's actually serious about trying to get their vote.
0: Peter Grafe, Professor of, Macma- of Political Science at McMaster University. Thanks, as always. Really appreciate it this morning. You're welcome. Uh, and as I say, the deadline, if you are interested in running, the deadline is Friday. So get your get yourself, get your act together. If you're not going to run, but you just want to see who is running, um, the Hamilton City of Hamilton website. Just type in the Hamilton election 2022 candidates, and that will pop up, and you can see who's running in your ward.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Here in Hamilton, we learned that the federal government was going to be investing $1.9 million to support black-led businesses in this city and in Windsor as well. It's part of a broader thing that's happening across the country. Helena Jazik is the minister responsible for the Federal Economic Development Agency. She joins us now. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. My pleasure, Scott.
0: Tell me about this program and and where it came from and why it was decided that this was an area that you wanted to be putting money and putting resources.
3: Well, the federal government has been aware that there are certain people in our society who uh, find uh, it really difficult to start a business. Um, They don't have the kind of supports, um, the networks uh, to allow them really to uh, establish themselves and to thrive. And in particular, uh, black uh, entrepreneurs have um, been disadvantaged uh, in this way. And so our government was uh, obviously aware of that and decided that we needed to invest uh, to assist So that um, individuals uh, in the black community who wanted to establish a business would have the appropriate supports in terms of advisory services, mentorship and uh, uh, networking opportunities. And um, uh, this group in Hamilton, the Empowerment Squared, uh, led by Leo Nicola Johnson, uh, approached the federal government uh, with a proposal uh, that was very compelling. And uh, uh, they, um, through their networking across southern Ontario and particularly southwest Ontario, uh, got together with the people they knew in Windsor. And so the proposal came to establish this particular uh, southwestern Ontario black business network.
0: It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting idea for sure. And one of the questions that I that immediately popped to mind, I was reading uh, one of the stories about this today from your announcement, and it was the one of the nonprofits in town conducted a feasibility study. They were asking black entrepreneurs and business people startups about the challenges. Uh, Many of them were said to be young, under 45, and only a third or so had revenues of 10,000. Those seem like very significant obstacles if you want to get a business going for sure. What wasn't clear, and I don't know the answer to this, is that significantly different from the challenges facing other startup groups, other entrepreneurs, other young business people Regardless of the background, is there something unique in Black entrepreneurs that they face something extra difficult to overcome?
3: Well, apparently, yes, uh, in terms of what we've seen through the years in terms of success. Uh, I think you are referring to uh, some compelling statistics that uh, uh, Ashley um, Montague, yes, Not, Yes, yeah. exactly. She and her two sisters have established Black-owned two sort of spearhead this whole initiative. I think we all know that uh, black youth have, in particular, been disadvantaged, um, some, obviously, have lived in Canada for many years and generations, but uh particularly in Hamilton, as Leo explained to me, many of the uh, black youth are relatively new newcomers. It's the last 20 years or so that they've arrived in Hamilton. And uh, Empowerment Squared has partnered and shared space with the Children's Aid Society in Hamilton. And so uh, they have a really good partnership going. Uh, because we know that there's great potential, obviously, uh, in every human being, and whatever we can do to just give people a little bit of a leg up to get started, it, it is something that's very positive. Of course, it isn't unique to the to the black community, but uh, in the case of Hamilton and Windsor, these are where community leaders have identified the needs.
0: As I understand it, this is the the 1.9 million for Hamilton and Windsor is not the some total there's is it 265 million dollars is in a fund that's going across the country for things like this
3: yes exactly It uh, the um, amount of money across canada is some 265 million dollars and i do want to emphasize that uh, the federal government through economic development agencies such as the one i lead fed dev ontario does look very very closely at the at the business plans this is uh, for the applicants, in other words. You know, we, we really analyze what the proposal is all about and want to make sure that we only uh, fund those expenses that are needed directly to support the program. So, it's not as though we fund the operations of the not-for-profit that is assisting with the programs. We fund the actual projects themselves. And, you know, it's, it's a reality. Uh, many young entrepreneurs have find it very difficult to get the kind of startup financing that they For need sure. through conventional banks, etc.
4: For and sure. So,
3: you know, this is, it, it, that sort of seed funding uh, can lead to a successful, thriving business. And that's exactly uh, where the federal government, we believe, needs to step in
0: and because this is not just here we've been you've been doing this elsewhere are are there are there tangible ways to measure whether this is leading to success or is it a we hope that it will if we give them a startup
3: <laughs> well we certainly follow the number of jobs created and um, it, sometimes it's not only the number of jobs created within that particular business but because that business Is thriving, they need supplies from other businesses. Uh, uh, So that there's also sort of a spin off effect on the rest of the business community because those uh, startups that we have helped, in fact, are helping other businesses in the community by needing supplies or whatever they need to produce their product.
0: Uh, that is Helena Jazak, who is the Federal Minister for the Economic Development Agency. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you for taking a few minutes to join us.
3: No problem. Thank you so much.
0: Really appreciate that. If you want to read more about this, you can go to Global News' website. has a piece on it. The spec has a piece on it right now about what is going to be happening, where this money is going into the Hamilton area.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The uh, public inquiry that is going to look into the federal government's rationale for using the Emergency Act last winter during the Freedom Convoy, it is going to kick off on September 19th. And we are learning some more details about what it is going to be and who might be there and other things along that line. I want to bring in Tim Powers, Chairman of Summit Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, to join us. Now, Tim, how are you? Scott. I'm used to you, Scotts and Hamilton. Radley,
4: Thompson. I mean, you're everywhere. You're everywhere, you Scotts.
0: We've been trying to convince Bill Kelly to change his name to Scott just for continuity, <laughs> and Rick as well, but uh, working That's on not it. working going to happen. It. So, Tim, look, the, the, we heard about this. It's going to be September 19 that we're going to get into this. We're starting to hear about who some of the witnesses might be and what documents and that it's going to be straight, all those kind of details. But the biggest question I think a lot of people mm-hmm. have is, do you believe this is truly going to lead to real answers or is this going to be one of those things where we kill the clock and run the time and don't answer stuff and obfuscate and at the end of it we have no idea what happened?
4: Well, I... I I would say this, Scott, I think we'll hear things, whether they serve as answers or not. I think people will determine that. I think we're seeing already with the parliamentary hearings that are happening this week, we're getting a lot of different information coming to the forefront about um, uh, some of the uh, the information that has been learned and uh, to date, we've seen uh, the release of some documents, as you know, that came forward um, last week. I believe it was talking about uh, that was the cabinet documents <clears throat> that uh, spoke about um, some of the information the federal cabinet had on the eve of declaring the Emergencies Act, including some information about there being a potential resolution, which didn't pan out. So I hope that's helpful because the purpose of the inquiry as per the legislation is to determine, you know, was it the right call? And if it wasn't, what can be done, what should have been done? So there's some sense that, some of that information is coming to the forefront, so I'll, I'll, I'll give optimism the opportunity right now, but uh, we'll, we will see.
0: Well, because we know that some of these government hearings—I'm thinking—if if I recall the uh, the SNC Lavalin, where they put limits on what was allowed to be said or how many days—and and you become cynical sometimes that this is a a, a PR. Job rather yeah. than trying to really get to the heart of it is the fact that we have a judge who is doing this, presumably an independent judge. Does that change your level of optimism that maybe we really will learn something important? It,
4: it, it creates that optimism, and and I believe I'm right in saying this, Scott, that that judge has requested that the classified cabinet documents be released, and generally the government so far has supported that request. I mean, again, we'll see when this starts and we learn more about it and how much, you know, black line redaction is is in there. But the early signs are encouraging. I I would say it's interesting, too, from an audience perspective, right? So you're getting me this morning in Ottawa, and I think you'd be hard-pressed still here to find anybody who lived here in Ottawa in January and February when this was going on to say that it wasn't the right call. Now you will have other people in other parts of the country, people with different political persuasions, people uh, who understand civil liberties better than you and I who will have different perspectives, Uh, but I can tell you the homegrown audience here that lived through the nightmare probably could care less about uh, what the outcome of that hearing is, and are more interested in knowing why the police didn't act sooner and why there wasn't more force, and maybe that that this particular inquiry does uh does address that
0: so uh, we're we're way ahead of this question, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway because we don't know yet what we're going to hear exactly, but if it was to be determined that there are questions about whether the act was appropriately used, and that's, that's mm-hmm. really the nut of this because people are, even those in Ottawa, I think probably want to yeah. make sure that this particular bludgeon of an act is not used easily. So yes, exactly. it, if it turns out that there is evidence or there's whatever comes out that says, you know what, we probably didn't need to use this. Is there anything that happens, or is it just, please don't do this again, or do we know yet what might happen from this?
4: Probably the latter two. Please don't you do this again, and, or we don't really know what will happen again, because again, I, I, I haven't read through the legislation in great detail. I don't know if, if you've had the opportunity to do that either. I mean, I think I remember seeing the coverage at the time and seeing some of the bits of the legislation. There's some latitude in there. I mean, again, I think you're, you're hitting on the key point that this shouldn't be a tool that's used when... Governments just are prepared to throw their hands up in the air and say nothing else can be done. It needs to be used in extremely uh, difficult circumstances when there are limited options. So I, you know, I have a, you and I have seen a few of these things before. I suspect there'll be enough shade cast on it to say, well, it was an option that was okay you know, I don't know if we'll say okay, but should have been contemplated. Maybe there were other things that could have been done at the the beginning. But my guess is there won't be a full saying, no, this was entirely the wrong call. Unless, as I say, unless we learn some startling new information. And to date, we really haven't yet from what we've seen through the parliamentary inquiry.
0: Okay, so let's flip it then. Let's say that this inquiry finds, you know what, this government was absolutely correct to invoke the Emergencies Act. In fact, maybe should have done so earlier. Is there a chance that that frees future governments to use it more freely? Yeah,
4: absolutely. And that again, so the judge is going to have to be very careful in whatever prescription or analysis he writes at the end to to make the point that this is, 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 an, is an, as the legal term would be, extraordinary circumstance, an extraordinary tool. It shouldn't be, to use a police term, a taser hauled out to subdue a suspect. Um, mm. it, it needs to be more, it needs to be thoroughly thought out and examined, and only when all other options have failed. I think that's what Canadians wanted. again, bias declared, if you were living here through mm-hmm. this period, And you saw what was happening and the ineffectiveness of things that happened in the beginning, and maybe that's also the answer to this. Maybe there were things that could have been done at the beginning that would have prevented the invocation of the Emergencies Act you you do believe there were extraordinary circumstances here, but of course all those things are in the eye of the beholder, right?
0: Right, and and this will be streamed. People can watch it. I assume, I'm guessing we've got to run. I'm guessing the audience for the streaming will be exceedingly high in Ottawa. It's going to be interesting to see around the rest of the country who all oh, tunes in, I, but, people,
4: um, I suspect you get a lot of people in civil liberties, a lot of people who were supportive of the convoy. I, I suspect it will have a unique audience, not like CJMLs, but uh, but, but but unique, more, more unique than what y- your listeners got.
0: Tim Power, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Thanks as always, Tim. Nice to talk to you. Bye.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Those of you who are old enough to remember the summer of 1998 mm-hmm. will remember probably very clearly that the story that summer Was the home run race between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and for a while Ken Griffey Jr. until he fell out of of the race. But for that summer, every single day, all the focus was on that. This was the biggest story in sports in who knows how long. I mean, it was enormous. Well, this summer, there is a baseball player and he plays in the biggest market in all of the sport who has a shot at breaking Roger Maris's record, the, the record of 61 homers in a season that is not now official Major League Baseball record, but the one that most pure t- traditionalists and those who favor getting rid of the records that the steroid-tainted players had, there is a guy who has a shot at this. And there's almost no buzz about this at all. And I was really puzzled why we're not talking or hearing more about Aaron Judge? I want to bring in Chelsea Jane. She's a national baseball reporter with the Washington Post. She joins us now. Chelsea, thanks for this.
5: Hi, can you hear
0: me? There we go. Now we got you. Thanks for doing this this morning. Really appreciate this. So I'm I'm more than a little surprised when you consider how many people said, "Well, I, I McGuire and Sosa and Bonds are all tainted." And I don't really believe that they are the real record. Someone's got to beat Roger Maris's 61 and do it clean. I'm really surprised that there's so little buzz around Aaron Judge and what he's doing this summer.
5: I think it's a great point. You know, I, I think you're right to be surprised. I think I am also a little bit surprised. And I think it is telling of how sort of, I don't know, jaded or sort of uncertain we all are about what to make of that record that, you know, that summer of 98 is never going to be sort of replaced, I think, in the in the collective psyche. But, yeah, it's, it's weird. And I think people are just skeptical. I think, you know, everyone can pick their own version of that record that they feel needs to be broken. And I also think it still might. You know, I think as his, he gets closer in September and, and things like that, I, I do think it, it might sort of steal the collective consciousness again.
0: You know, up in Canada, we hear, um, after Ben Johnson and everyone remembers Ben Johnson, um, after Mm -hmm. Ben Johnson and the whole steroid scandal at the Olympics, which was a disaster for us. And it, it was painful. We had Donovan Bailey come along who was outstanding, never a whiff of hint of steroids or anything around him. But there's a lot of people who say he never got the credit he deserved because there was always the expectation. Oh, I don't want to get too invested in this because what if? Do you think there's any part of that, that Aaron Judge is a huge man, he's powerful, that do you think people are just assuming that maybe there's something going on and I don't want to buy into it too much because I'll get disappointed again?
5: Yeah, I don't know if there's an assumption that there's anything going on there. You know, we've certainly never sort of heard any suggestion that that's... Nothing. He's always been... Right, he's always been such a big guy. But, but I do think, you know, to your point, like, we don't know what to make of it. We don't know what to think when someone is doing this and, and there's been so many things over the years that have sort of made everyone say, well, this isn't the same as that, you know, is the baseball juice, is it dead? Is this more impressive? Is it not? You know, it's, it's all just sort of muddled in everyone's mind. And I think that's part of what people love about baseball is that it's not super easy always to kind of figure out what's what and, and how to compare one thing to another. But I, you know, I also think that, you know, the Fernando Tatis news isn't going to help. There's just sort of this right. suspicion that it's out there and, Certainly we've seen that the drug testing policy seems to work. It seems to sort of catch the things that weren't caught before. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think there's just this feeling that, like, what record are we talking about, number one? You know, is it, is it actually that impressive for him to beat Barris after we've seen, you know, what McGuire and Sosa did? Does he need to beat McGuire and Sosa? You know, how big is the clean record versus the Bonds record? There's just kind of a lot of context there, and I, and I still think that if we get to mid-September and he's really close uh, or about to blow by it, you know, maybe everyone sort of realizes then like, hey, this is this is new, this is different, this is something worth thinking
0: about. Well, let me follow up on your point there about what. how big is the clean record. Do you think that will, ca- do you think that could? I mean, you say that by September maybe, but do you think that would catch on that somebody would say we have two records, but we believe in this one more? Or are we always going to maybe say that, but still, hey, 73 is still the mark?
5: That's a great point. I, you know, I think there's, I think the clean thing will hold up, you know, in retrospect, I think there's sort of so much uh, documentation of, of what went into the 73 and, and the others in 70, that you can kind of say, okay, well, those were achieved in one way and, and, you know, 61 and others were not. Um, so I think people can kind of separate that in their mind. I think baseball fans to kind of like a little bit of complication. It's not an easy sport to follow every day. It's, it's very rarely cut and dried. And I think, you know, I think that's part of it, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's suspicion. I don't know if it's you know kind of waiting to see what happens. But but there's definitely sort of an interesting feel to it this year because it doesn't feel like a home run chase yet, and and I, it could still. But the Yankees now are struggling, and you know how is Aaron Judge going for a home run record going to calm anybody in New York down if they blow? You know what was <laughs> sort of the big lead. It's just there's so much going on there, and I you know it just feels like there's a lot of things pulling at everyone's attention, and maybe. maybe in September that that
0: won't be true you write baseball you must be passionate about baseball I know you are this probably is a tough question for you because I'm guessing it is a big deal for you but once upon a time I think maybe the 100 meter record and the single season home run record might have been the two most famous records in sports maybe there were others but do you think it still holds up like that do you think it still has that place on the pedestal that the single season home run mark is still one of the greatest things in sports
5: uh i don't know you know i i think certainly in 98 it it felt that way and and what's changed between now and then is you know the steroid stuff so i think i just think people don't know what to make of it anymore they don't know what to sort of revere anymore. And maybe that, maybe that changes, you know, maybe if, if judge gets close and people start thinking about it and saying, okay, you know, if we think this guy is clean, then this is something that hasn't been done in however many years, you know, it you know, Yankee hasn't done this in however many years, I think that'll catch on. But, you know, it, it strikes me as we're having this conversation that you have to start every sentence with if you think this guy is clean and, and no one has suggested he's not certainly, but it's just this new caveat that, that make it just seems like a record that is uniquely
0: complicated. Sort of
5: subject, yes, uniquely subjected to to steroids. Like I think all records are, but people really associate this one with drugs that help you do this. And I think until it is proven otherwise, you're gonna wonder, you know, how did this guy do this thing that that no one else did without the aid of some substances.
0: Wonder how much money Todd McFarlane will pay for a ball if judge hits number 62. (laughs) (laughs) Burned once, I don't know if he'll do it again. Uh, That is uh, Chelsea Chelsea Janes, national baseball reporter for The Washington Post. Terrific job. Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it.
5: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: It is uh, back in uh, 1998, by the way, just as a uh, sort of context, Mark McGuire said, that you need to have 50 home runs before the end of August. By the start of September, if you're going to have a legitimate shot at 61. Aaron Judge is at 46 right now with about two weeks left in August. So we'll see. You're listening to
1: the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Peace in the Guardian over overseas, over in the UK. And the premise is that if you look at streaming service numbers from Spotify and Deezer that people younger and younger now into their early thirties, if not just 30, have essentially stopped listening to any new music. By the time they are 30, they have locked in what they're going to listen to. They will not explore anything else and their openness to new kinds of music ceases and then as they become, you start hearing the same stuff over and over, you become more disinterested because it's so commonplace and music itself becomes less of a priority in your life. It's an interesting thought. I don't know what I think about this, but I know that Alan Cross, who is one of the great music writers and commentators, host of the Ongoing History of New Music, the Journal of Musical Things you can find online, he will have thoughts on this. Alan, how are you this morning? I'm, I'm good. This is uh, just the cycle of life. Uh, every once in a while, this
6: particular topic comes up for discussion and it's it's really nothing new this is the way things have always been Uh, there is that sweet spot that we have between the ages of about 13 and 23 there's about a 10-year gap uh, when we enter high school and then get into the real world And during that time, music means everything to us. Not only do we have the time and energy and maybe disposable income to engage with it, but we use music to help us understand ourselves and then use that music to express our identities to the world. And it is these coming-of-age years with music that stick with us for the rest of our lives. And by the time we get into... Let's say into the real world, into university or out of university, and 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 moving on with with the rest of our lives, we become uh, distracted by other things. I mean, we've got mm. careers, we've got debts, we've got real estate, we got families, we got a boss that we hate, we've uh, got a job that we're struggling with. You know, all that sort of stuff, and music becomes less of a priority because we just don't have the the energy for it. And by the time we get to our our thirties it's like you know what life is weighing down on me i just don't have the time to devote to music that i used to and you know what i'm noticing that it doesn't sound as good as it did when i was young so there's something wrong with it uh and and what's interesting if you go deeper into these streaming statistics you'll find that there seems to be an age about 40 40 and a half 42 years old where many people go, you know what, I'm still young, I'm still cool, I'm still hip, I'm still with it, I can still get down with the kids. And they spend about uh, 12 to 18 months trying to get back into music in the same way as they did when they were, were teenagers. And uh, after a while, they give up. It's just, no, you know what, and I'm going to go back. If I, if I need a hit of music, what I'm going to do is go back to that time in my life when music was everything to me, and uh, I, I'm just going to live in those years.
0: Well, they give up now because so many people are saying, "Yeah, but the music today, for the most part, sucks." I, I'm not. I that's not an editorial comment. That is, uh, you hear that all the time, though. It's not the same as it was, and maybe again, that's just an age thing. But you know, there's something else, though, Alan, about this that really I find intriguing about this particular time. And you talked about how music was everything to you, but for in the '50s, in the '60s, in the '70s, '80s, '90s, even into the '2000s, music was a very collective thing because you listen to it out loud with other people in your car or with a ghetto blaster in the 80s or whatever now everyone's got the earbuds in and you're doing it by yourself it seems like it's less of a community kind of thing
6: oh very much so there is no center to the music industry these days uh, the rock stars that we have or the music stars that we have today are nowhere near as big as they were back in the in the olden days because we had this consensus we had this agreement that these were the greatest musical stars of mm-hmm. called- you know, every, everywhere. So, you know, despite all the bump that you hear about streaming stats and you know Drake is breaking all these Beatles chart records and all the rest of it, yeah, that's nice and it's impressive, but it's nowhere near as impressive as it used to be because there was so much less music to listen to back in the day. And we were basically spoon fed what we were supposed to listen to. So that resulted in this consensus and this agreement about what was good. And we would all discuss the same artists. Because you know there was this artificial shortage of, of, of music created by the record labels and radio stations and video channels and music magazines and all the rest of them. And, and, and that's what we, f- we focused on. Another thing to remember is, and this goes back to ancient Rome, Plato and Aristotle wrote about it. But basically, the music, every generation has a biological right to believe that the music of their youth is the greatest music of all time. Of course, of course. So, you know, no matter who you are, I mean, no matter who you are, no matter what generation you're from, you're
0: always gonna go back and say that the music when you were young was the greatest of all time. Unquestionably. Uh, which is why Alphaville remains the greatest band of no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> hey, they're, a band that's never played Canada. <laughs> is that true? They've been the true. but they're big in Japan. But uh, they are big in and Japan. Bra- yeah. And and Brazil for some reason. And Brazil. They didn't write a song though called Big in Brazil. No, they should have. They did been. not. They should have. Been. Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music, always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. You're welcome.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: I think that there are probably two movie characters that the character themselves is enough to get people talking and to make news. One of them is always who is going to play Batman next. That has been one that people have talked about for a long time. Every time there's a change that comes up. The other one is maybe even more obvious and that is, who is going to be the next James Bond? Well, there are now stories out that not only are they looking for a new James Bond, now that Daniel Craig has fulfilled all of his obligations, but some of the names that have been bouncing around as almost surefire bonds, not in the mix anymore. want well, to bring in Jeff Weibo, who is with JamesBondCanada.com. James, how are you? Or Jeff, pardon me. Jeff, how are you today? <laughs> hey, Scott. Pretty good. Thank you Natural for mistake. James Bond Canada. Uh, I call you James. You know, I'll take so, it. Uh, and by the way yes there really is a james bond candidate it's a real thing and uh so jeff listen i appreciate you doing this um th- we have heard for a long time now the name um uh idris Elba was seemingly the front runner there were a few other ones that apparently according to a newspaper in the uk express uk now says no he's out of the mix they want someone way 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 younger why
7: well i it- if you've seen what the Daniel Craig films, they took a long time. They took from 2006 plus all the pre-production all the way till 2021. So you need a a younger actor if you want to carry on. And I think the 007 series is going to be taking finally more of a like the Marvel approach and really plan out their next so many movies. So they do want a younger actor that can actually do it because, yeah, like you said, Ildris Elba is what 49 now. You know, if he was going to do 10, 15 years of Bond films, it's, he's going to be up there now. So with all the stunts and the demand and everything, you need a younger actor, and that's kind of where we are right now in the post-Daniel Craig era.
0: Yeah, And I guess, you know, like when you say that, I mean, Harrison Ford is doing apparently another Indiana Jones movie, and he's 80. So I guess, you know, you don't <laughs> have to be that young, but I mean, Bond has a, there's a difference between James Bond and Indiana Jones, not in the, just the physical stuff they have to do, but there's other parts of the character that probably you want someone a little younger, a little more. I don't know. Is <laughs> yeah. the word virile too old-fashioned? So,
7: yeah. Well, I'm sure for Harrison, they're going to write into the story that he's older and can't keep up like he used to. And they tried that at the end of Daniel Craig, and even with some of the older Sean Connery kind of stuff with Never Seen Ever Again. Uh, but yeah. Bond has always kind of been mid-30s in the novels, and that's kind of where most of the audience kind of like to see him for the most part, even though Roger Moore did it into the 50s. It just eventually gets a a little crazy because if the leading ladies are 20 and the star is 55, it's just not working uh, for audiences and especially in today's. Maybe they they got away with that in the 80s, but not today. So You mentioned, you referenced
0: Marvel a minute ago, that they want to go down that Mm. route. I'm assuming, are you thinking that they want to take james bond into more of a marvel kind of thing like a superhero kind of action flick or do you mean just the way it's planned out and built one after the other
7: the planning like they would actually have a whiteboard and they would plan okay we're gonna do the first movie and then this is what's gonna happen at the end of it and we know what's gonna happen on the next one too often after every daniel craig movie they're exhausted from running a giant marathon and then they're like oh man, we got to run another marathon tomorrow. So then all of a sudden one year goes by and two years goes by and they don't know what they want to do. So I think they're taking this time right now to determine who they want as their star. And we'll have to, Barbara Broccoli is the uh, producer from Eon Productions that runs this. So a female picks who will the next Bond will be. And it's all up to her. We don't know if, if it's going to be Henry Cavill, who's, you know, they're saying he's out, but I mean, He could still do it. And I think he would uh, bring in the box office numbers or she always goes to the theater in the UK. So it could be a completely unknown person that none of us even know it's going to be the next person. And I, and I think they're going to actually plan out a bit of a, a real story for um, one, two, three, four movies in a row rather than one and done and one and done and one and done. That's my thoughts. So Marvel for like a full uh, end game kind of approach to, to the bond movies. When did we get to the older Bonds? Because I think, if I'm correct, Sean Connery
0: was very early in his 30s when he started, and Pierce Brosnan was in his 30s, early to mid-30s. And, um, you know, most of them, once upon a time, were young men. Now, they stayed with it for a little while, but they. when did we get to older
7: just, ones to begin with? Mm-hmm. I just think it was a different time, because, like, Lazenby, George Lazenby was 28, and Sean Connery, like you said, was r- right around 30. Now, how many 28-year-olds can barely get a mortgage, let alone carry a, an entire uh, franchise? <laughs> yeah. uh, just the times, I think they just want to see someone who's mature enough, and, and these the new star has to uh, deal with social media so much more than Sean Connery ever had to do, or Lazenby, or Roger Moore. Um, even though Sean Connery was getting the Japanese uh, media following him to the bathroom in Japan, but in 1967, now you've... you uh, Go, whoever they're going to name as the next Bond now. Like you said, Twitter's going to explode, and it's going to take a lot of mental bandwidth for the actor to. Uh, deal with it so maybe they're just looking for somebody probably mid-30s at this point is my guess okay I don't think they can get anyone in their 20s
0: no and if that's the point if the point is we want to have someone who is young enough that they can be in for three or four or five movies even if there's a gap between them that's suggesting there's going to be three or four or five more and I think the one question with the James Bond franchise always is does it ever have a best before date because of some of the things that people point at, the fact that he's a womanizer, the fact that he is mm-hmm. a, a killer, the like things that are not necessarily as accepted or common or enjoyed, I guess, in certain ways today as they may have been 30, 40, 50 years ago. Is
7: there a future for this franchise? They definitely need to adapt. They definitely need the younger crowds in because, yes, it's, it's more of a dad's bond that always would go to, the theaters with their sons to kind of and daughters to go watch it but the younger crowds aren't going as much in north america to bond it's huge in, in europe still but they definitely need to really think about that and how and that's where they're at right now they want to know who this next bond will be and the best part is he does keep up with the times yes the novels were written that he was uh just you know out of the war and into the double o section within england in the fifties, but that you know we're out of world war ii right now but is there different wars that could happen are there different people uh, in in this world that are threatening us with nuclear weapons right now possibly some connections that they could make a a villain towards and then they could maybe determine what a 007 would look like today and i think even in the last bond film they they didn't make him bond stayed the same but everyone around him kind of Uh, made sure he wasn't a womanizer as he was in the 60s so like they kind of like jabbed at him in in no time to die a bit but uh, definitely it needs to be addressed going forward in the future
0: just before we go um do you think that I mean every actor who has played Bond even George Lazenby who only played him once have become tied to that character you are forever known as james bond are there people who do you think really want that or are they worried about being pigeonholed as that guy forever is it
7: going to be easy to find someone in other words um well that was one of daniel craig's concerns taking over the role because he went from kind of just being in movies to then the world was looking at him so for his approach he didn't want that immediately but then he thought this is too big to turn down a guy like Henry Cavill has been trying everything to get this role by being Superman, by being a man from uncle um, mission impossible. He wants it. He trains with special forces. He's a fit person. Uh, he's just, he's British. He, he, he wants it. But uh, Pierce Brosnan's famously quoted to say that uh, more people have walked on the moon than have played James Bond. So That's, it's quite, there the, you go quite the legendary uh, experience. If you there it is.
0: It. So, yeah, even if you're pigeonholed, it's, uh, it's still pretty cool. Uh, Jeff, not James Weibel from James <laughs> Bond Canada. You know that? I bet I'm not the first, but I, I probably won't be the <laughs> last either. Uh, Jeff Weibel, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing Much this. Much appreciated. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, and wherever
4: you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.